Someone's fucking calling me. Hold on. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to security, cryptography, whatever. I am Deirdre. We are here with David. How are you doing, David? I'm doing pretty good. I liked your talk yesterday. If anyone didn't see David's talk, were you at Michigan or were you at uh, I wasn't you... anywhere. I was in my house um, doing yes. a video call lecture for Zakir's course, which I don't know the number of, but that's roughly, here's how the internet actually works at Stanford. Um, ah, okay. But all of my slides were branded as Michigan Ooh. because... That's why I was confused. Because uh, <laughs> many of them were adapted from my PhD defense that I did for Michigan a few years ago. Um, so despite... I was... <laughs> uh, currently wearing a Michigan shirt while we're recording this, and despite the block M's all over the slides, actually had nothing to do with the University of Michigan. That's why I was confused. I was like, is the cure at Michigan? No, he's not at Michigan. But anyway, we also have Thomas. How are you doing, Thomas? I live. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Very good. And today, our special guest is Jason Donenfeld, creator of WireGuard. Hi, Jason. Hey, happy to be here. <laughs> Good, awesome. For those that don't know, WireGuard is the VPN everyone should be using nowadays if they have a choice uh, on using a VPN. And not VPN as a service, but VPN as a protocol, as to be contrasted with things like IPsec. For cryptography nerds and for nice protocol aficionados who appreciate a nice, simple uh, protocol design. WireGuard is a breath of fresh air compared to things like IPsec. So we are big fans of WireGuard here, and it emerged into from the ether into the world via Jason's brain. So we are very excited to have Jason on our podcast. Can someone else fangirl besides me right now? <laughs> I can. I, I, I think, um, and, and Jason, I, I'm going to wait for you to shoot me down on this, but I think, uh, I think that WireGuard might be one of the more important things ever to happen to internet security. Not because VPN protocols by themselves are that critically important, although they are very important, but because the process that brought WireGuard, you know, kind of into the market uh, was so different than the process that brought other VPN protocols before it. In, in particular, IPsec, right? So a huge difference. There's a number of differences between, you know, WireGuard and previous VPN protocols. But um, a huge difference between IPsec and WireGuard is that WireGuard is kind of one person's design, um, kind of free from standards committee, you know, interference. You know, you got to learn from what happened with previous protocols and come up with something that's kind of pure, uh, and not compromised. I have a very low opinion of internet standards cryptography and internet standards, you know, kind of security protocols in general. And I think WireGuard's one of the first times in my career I've seen, you know, something get this much adoption without having to, you know, get through the filter of, you know, the IETF. Uh, am I crazy to think that? I, I mean, I'm flattered you think it's so important. I mean, I guess time will tell there, but uh, certainly the process that's brought it about is very atypical in that WireGuard came about, just me putting it out, and it's been successful. I mean, a lot of people have made 
different pieces of VPN software themselves and put it out there, but it doesn't gain adoption. It's the crazy thing about WireGuard is it actually worked, um, which I didn't really even intend to do when I began. Uh, I just wanted the thing to exist because I needed it. Um, and and it, what did you need it for specifically? Because I love this um, origin story. Yeah, I, I guess a, a couple things. Um, the kind of the initial impetus is I, I moved to France in uh, 2012, and uh, I wanted to be able to use U.S. internet. And um, I was, you know, familiar with OpenVPN and IPsec, and spent a long time kind of finding bugs in that. And I didn't want to run that. And at the same time, I was working on some some rootkit exfiltration software, uh, where I needed a good kind of minimal tunnel to get information out. Hmm. Uh, and I started thinking, well, you know, I, I can already channel packets through this. Why don't I just kind of make that into something? And the the plan at the time was to run my American exit point on my parents' computer back at home, to get U.S. internet and. Uh, you're like, well, putting on a rootkit on my parents' computer, that's probably not a good idea. Uh-huh. So I started taking out the the nasty code and separating uh, WireGuard. And, and then it just kind of turned into a thing on, on its own and seemed viable. And a couple friends wanted to use it. So I you know, made a, a, a Git repo where I, I kept thinking, okay, I finally got it. Now it's done. And I would squash down the Git history to... A single commit called initial scaffolding. Oh my so god! So there's like the one initial scaffolding commit for so long, <laughs> and then even even after that, um, I, I I you know I was fine sharing it with two three friends, but I didn't want to put some crap code out there with bad crypto or anything else. So I really spent a lot of time writing and rewriting, working through every algorithm over and over and over. Uh, just kind of a, a process of iteration. Every time I would fix one part, be, you know, 10 more ideas would spring up for other parts. And so the, the whole thing got written a million times. And then around the same time, Trevor was getting going with uh, his noise project. And uh, very early on, I had sent Trevor an email. I think I had read his thing on 3DH or something. He said, hey, by the way, I got this new noise mailing list. And... I, at the time, uh, I mean, noise had really just begun. It was very, very far from what it eventually turned into. Um, and so some of the things I was working on with WireGuard then went back into noise and vice versa, where I wound up cool. actually implementing uh, nearly every revision of noise that we did on the mailing list. Uh, every time there would be a change, we go, all right, well, it, implementing that. And then I'd play around with the kernel design, see what needed to be changed, and we kind of went in this feedback loop for a long time there. So were you trying out basically every every permutation that the noise framework was coming up with to see if kind of that was the one that you wanted to use for WireGuard or whether you could just do it in WireGuard as an option? Not not quite every uh, every different noise handshake pattern. I mean, there are a lot of them and they don't all have the same cryptographic properties and state machine right. properties. Uh, but even the handshake language evolved over time. So when I say implement every revision, I mean like every time we made a change to what noise is, I implemented that. As far as the actual handshake, um, it was pretty clear to me what the kernel requirements for that were early on. It needs to be, you know, one round trip as possible, minimal state, uh, 
And I, I, I had kind of the basic idea of what things needed to look like in the code. And then it was a question of, all right, how can I make the crypto work there? So you were, you were working within some pretty specific constraints from the beginning. One of them was, one, you were trying to, it evolved out of a need to exfiltrate data and you needed a very small payload for the tunnel to run, right? Just the, the software to make it run, which ruled out like all this IPsec stuff because it's pretty heavy in terms of communication on the wire, but it's also like a bunch of code to actually make the thing go. Is that correct? Yeah, code needed to be small, but that's also kind of an aspect of just the security of the whole thing is okay. I, I want to be able to keep the whole code base in my head at once. Mm -hmm. And um, something I apply for, you know, writing code that would be used defensively, but also it's something that matters to me a lot offensively too. I'm going to be running some spooky code on a weird system that's not mine in a strange environment where it's not supposed to be run, you know, it, in some corrupt memory context or whatever. I really want to understand every bit of that code. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I could keep in things small and, and just that I could keep it all in, in my head at once was a, was a big, important part, anyway, which yeah. kind of goes back to what uh, Thomas was, was saying about IETF designs uh, versus kind of me just doing it. You know, IPsec is big and complicated, and it does a lot of stuff. And some of the stuff it does, it does very well. It's tons of different use cases. Uh, kind of, you know, everyone got their little part of it, and it's extremely useful. But as a result, keeping that all in your head at once is really complicated. And, you know, maybe you can keep a couple general ideas of the RFCs in your mind, but then what about all the implementation details and, um, you know, maybe eventually you can get a whole implementation in your head, but then how much kind of fades away from what you're able to think about all at once. You know, yeah. It's just, it's like, it's presumably the case that no rootkit author has ever embedded IPsec into their, you know, like a <laughs> clean room IPsec implementation <laughs> into their rootkits. Yeah, I don't think so. Like this size is one, you know, huge comparison between, you know, WireGuard and IPsec and OpenVPN. For for I guess there there have to be people hearing this that aren't really already read into why WireGuard is so great. So if you were gonna give yeah. me like a couple of more reasons, um a, a couple more distinctions is a better way to put it, between WireGuard and kind of classic IPsec. Like what would be your like top three there? Top three. I don't know about top three, but I, I can give you just a couple as they occur to me. So uh, another thing WireGuard focuses on is stealth uh, and, and um, kind of a silent state machine where if you're not sending traffic, it doesn't do anything. And kind of connected to this... Or do anything in, like, in memory or... Doesn't do, anything on the, doesn't do anything on the wire. Okay. So, it's not like um, keep alives or anything like that. Yeah. So the keep alives go away if there's not actually a traffic to send. And if you send traffic to WireGuard that it doesn't recognize it just won't respond Good. um and so kind of attached to this then is uh, a very stubborn state machine where everything moves around with uh with timers so that attackers can't really influence much from the outside if even if you send legitimate packets the most you'll do is crank a timer but you won't be able to elicit some immediate response or or move the whole state ahead by one notch. You'll just schedule a timer to happen when it's going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very stubborn. You, 
you know, you you annoy it to do something and it'll get around to doing it maybe if it feels like it, but it won't ever really respond to you. So I, so these kind of go together as, as being um, just kind of like stealthy, uh, small property where it, it hides in the network. It's, it's resilient. The crypto as uh, another thing um, in WireGuard is also uh, not ancient. It has, you know, one set of ciphers with a provably secure construction, uh, and that's kind of it. It doesn't have a bunch of options for what to do with those. You can't configure your, you know, RSA bit size, though um, uh, no I suppose somewhat post-quantum RSA, you know, with gigabit <laughs> keys and stuff. But nope, uh, unfortunately not with WireGuard. Well, I have questions about post-quantum stuff, but we'll save that for later. Sure. <laughs> And so it's it's not configurable. The 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 choices in it are good, reasonable choices for you know just about every reasonable use case. And if they ever break, uh, you know, it's the same as if the software's got a bug, and then we just change to something different. I think it like surprises people. Like if I look at like if I look at reactions to WireGuard's design, you know, from people that are somewhat familiar with VPN protocols. I think that's a surprising detail of WireGuard for people. It looks at first, I think to some people, like it's a bug, although it's a huge feature. And I think it's counterintuitive why it's a feature that WireGuard doesn't have cipher suites, doesn't have configuration, doesn't do negotiation, right? Like it's it's a single set of you know primitives and then people's reaction to that is generally, well, what happens if one of those primitives break? Um, and I, I guess we all have thoughts on that, right? But there's like a general kind of train of thought right now among cryptography engineers that the path you're taking of selecting just a couple of primitives and sticking with them um, and then versioning the whole protocol is the right path to take. And I wonder how clear that is to like to people that aren't like paying attention to cryptography engineering, um, why that's a win. Yeah, I think in the beginning of the project, uh, this caught a lot of people off guard. It struck a lot of people as a red flag, even. Like, oh my God, no no cipher agility. What are we going to do? Yeah, um, I remember um, at NSS, uh, the security conference, academic security conference in like 2017, you were there because you had published WireGuard um, at that conference. And I remember sitting out like in the lobby or something and hearing a table of people from Cisco talk about oh that WireGuard thing looks pretty cool but like clearly no one's going to use it how there's no key distribution and you can't pick your ciphers it's just not possible to use um <laughs> yeah but there's no key you know the answer to this SSH question either it's, it's true uh, that the answer to this question what are we going to do when the ciphers break is the same as you know what are you going to do when there's a heap overflow or something i just it, it can be dealt with the same way in this day and age. You know, maybe the the conditions around that were different in the 90s or something. Ciphers were breaking right and left. No one trusted anything. I don't know. But I think certainly now, you know, chop poly, curve to five of 19, that stuff is fine. Yeah. I think that, like, a VPN situation, you have pretty good control of both endpoints, um, yep. like there's, you're not usually just letting random people connect to your VPN. It's not TLS. Um, it, it doesn't have to support right. every device on the internet and kind of provide a rolling upgrade path in the same way that TLS yep. does. Like you can just run two versions at once for a little bit if you need to, or just do a hard cutoff. Yeah. I, I mean, this connects with something else you just mentioned, which is also, there's also no key distribution in it. 
which is another one of these weird things where I see this as a big strength of WireGuard, but uh, a lot of more wary people see that as, huh, but the other things of key distribution, that's clearly missing, it's a problem. Uh, but indeed, as you said, for the most part, you have control over both ends of, of VPN and VPN context. And by sticking with just basic static keys, uh, the whole configuration gets super simple, the attack surface gets really small, and then people are able to put their own thing on top of it. And so we've, you know, seen a bunch of different solutions and products and projects and all sorts of things come up where people have their own take on how should WireGuard keys be distributed. But importantly, it's not, you know, you always must use X509 and, you know, let's put another AS on one parser in the kernel. And it's it's just not necessary. No, let's not. <laughs> yeah. And there's a like there's a kind of there's like a kind of humility to that design, right? Like I think a you know a stumbling block for a lot of other systems is like you look at the set of features that people are potentially going to want, and you feel obligated to implement them all yourself, like to build them into your system. But like yeah. I think it's probably safe to say not a lot of people have built interesting new networking systems off of OpenVPN, right? Like people have done a lot with OpenVPN, but like there aren't systems built with OpenVPN as like a building block, um, like. This is our new protocol, and like the kernel of the protocol is OpenVPN. Because OpenVPN has opinions about absolutely everything, and your system is simple and really orthogonal is a cool thing about it, right? Like, it's really easy to build things on top of it because you don't have a key distribution thing built in, right? You just have, you know, a mechanism for keying both sides of a connection, and then it's kind of, it's up to the integrator or to the next level up to kind of, you know, come up with those things. Right. It's it's just a building block. Um, and even in the tooling that the WireGuard project provides, um, you know, for people who are running this on their laptop and just want to have kind of a personal situation, there's a little tool called WG Quick that, you know, is what kind of most people use. But actually, that's just like a crappy bash script I wrote because it just uses the the basic things under the hood. And then for people who want more robust things, you know, there's a API to use it and it can be integrated in that way. But it doesn't prescribe any of that. And uh, the the hope is that people will maybe figure out more interesting designs than traditional PKI for distributing keys. And, you know, we've already seen this in the mesh space, seen it a lot in uh, con containerization. Also, a, a lot of systems people have kind of already have an existing channel for distributing keys. Right. Um, some people run WireGuard and, you know, Kubernetes, which already has this massive distribution system for config. And so adding WireGuard keys to an already existing trusted channel is just a no-brainer. Whereas if you're trying to, you know, do that with IPsec or OpenVPN or something, then you're adding this additional weird PKI thing on top of that. And what you wind up doing is trying to recreate basically this notion of pre-shared keys, but into some PKI that doesn't really fit well. Could you talk a little bit about how what you call crypto key routing works in WireGuard just because I think that is really cool and also like the thing that kind of makes all of this building possible. Sure. So the concepts based on configuration key that's called allowed IPs, uh, which is maybe not, not named so well, perhaps it should be tunneled IPs, but it's allowed IPs. And the way this works is on the way out, it's a routing table. And on the way in, it's an ACL. And I mean that like this. Um, <laughs> when you send an outbound packet, WireGuard will look at the 
destination address of that packet and see, okay, which of the peers is configured for that destination address? Uh, and if it finds one that matches uh, using the usual uh, prefix matching that routing tables use, then it will encrypt that to the peers public key, uh, you know, after a handshake and such. On the way in, when it gets a packet from a peer, uh, it will look at the source address of that packet and it'll say, okay, were I sending a packet to this source address, which peer would I send it to? And if that peer is the same as the peer that actually sent you the packet, then it's considered to be authentic. So it's a kind of an ACL there, or reverse path filter. And the nice property this gives is a, uh, a mapping between public keys and IP addresses. So from the perspective of a network service running on a system, if it comes from the WireGuard interface and from a given IP, then you can know with certainty that it's an authentic packet and it's really from that peer. So you don't need to have any additional complicated stuff in your firewall about keys or any WireGuard specifics. You can just use IP addresses. In some way, um, it's like the model of uh, RSH, but you know, that R host model, but uh, it actually works. It's actually cryptographically identified. Now, I'm not advocating we go back to using our host. It's you know, a terrible idea for other reasons, but for just the basic bonding between pub key and IP address, this crypto key routing concept winds up being really kind of powerful thing for administrators. And so WGE, like Quick, just kind of sets up a one-to-one roughly connection, if I remember correctly, and, you know, sets the allowed yeah. IP... P's and yeah, I mean, WG Quick will look at a WireGuard config, mm-hmm. um, which contains private key, listen port, a list of peers. Each peer has a public key, a list of allowed IPs, and optionally an endpoint, uh, maybe persistent keep alive. WG Quick adds on a couple things to the basic WireGuard thing where you can also throw like an IP address in the config file so that it'll set the IP address for the interface, which isn't a WireGuard thing, that's just normal Linux networking. Mm-hmm. But it's convenient, so it's just thrown in the Spanish script. It will also uh, add all of the allowed IPs from each of the peers and set those as routes to the interface, which, again, isn't you know, a WireGuard thing. It's just a Linux networking thing, but it just automates it. So WG Quick is just the kind of easy wrapper around Linux mm-hmm. admin stuff. Yeah, but I think the, the core insight there is that like you can manipulate the, uh, the routing table as, you know, just like on Linux. Like You don't have to like push out a config that has everything right that's in advance. Right. You could build a system that's like dynamically editing these things in the same way that like you're dynamically constructing routes just like you would on Linux. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, the WG Quick config files are generally just static, but you could very easily make a whole dynamic system to do this too instead. So like we're talking a lot about Linux networking. I think like the most important implementation or at least up till now, the most important implementation of WireGuard has been the Linux kernel implementation of it. It runs everywhere, right? Like there isn't a, is there a mainstream system right now where there isn't a decent WireGuard implementation? I mean, I think all the phones, um, you have a really good one on Windows now. Um, Yeah, there's one on Mac OS. You've got pretty much coverage right now, right? Yeah, I I mean, I'd say the, um, the one in last place right now is the Mac one because we still don't have a kernel implementation there. But everywhere else we've got in the kernel. is a uh, Windows kernel implementation came out recently, super fast, crazy code writing for NT kernel. Can talk about that in a bit if you like. 
Uh, there, there's one for FreeBSD, for OpenBSD, and then Linux covers Android. And actually, it's now in the Android 12 kernel, which is really nice. Um, Wait, what? It's like the it's it's stock Android now. Yeah, so. so it's it's they haven't built out the user space component of it, um, so you still have to be rooted if you want to actually use it. So hopefully that'll be in the next version. But it's now in the builds for the kernels, so all the phones that are coming out this year will eventually have you know user space support that uses the kernel component. And if you've got the WireGuard app and you root your phone, then it'll opportunistically use the kernel implementation. So. I think like I think a thing that's hard to get your head around is that like like the the, the most the, the original WireGuard implementation was Linux kernel and it's in the mainline kernel now it's part of the Linux kernel like I think a lot of people are wondering how you pulled that off small um, easy to audit yeah I don't I don't know how I pulled that off um, I guess um, maybe he's one of the only people besides Linus that understands how to email a Git patch around. I think that's <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a part of that story that I think is super significant that people don't really talk about or really care about because it's slightly mundane, but super important in the success was that I backported WireGuard to every Linux kernel back to 3.10. Oh my God. Um, so I always developed against mainline, but then I maintained this super crappy compat.h file like did the worst if def hacks to like transform the code using the preprocessor to run on old kernels it's still there and still maintained and as awful as ever but that that worked and it allowed people to start using wireguard long before it was in mainline or even a thought in mainline and so once that was there then i could go around to each of the distros and say hey by the way i've got a package for your distro that will allow people to add this with just one line uh, so it worked on all the distros and then it was available, and people started using it. That's incredible. That, and then, like, that's know, a non-trivial work, piece of work. Yeah, and kind of, you know, boring, bad work, too, just like the compass stuff. I mean, it, it, it sucked, <laughs> but it, I think it, necessary. And, and even for my own usage, you know, I wanted to run it on uh, you know, a crappy old edge router, um, which runs 310. So, you know, I had, had to do it. And then once people were using it, and especially once Linux kernel developers themselves were using it, uh, then it was, hey, why are we compiling this out of tree? Can we get this in tree? You know, then it just became naturally like that. At the same time, you know, I gave a few talks at Linux conferences and, you know, talking to folks on the mailing list. And uh, it's, it's a community I've been part of for a long time and written other parts of the kernel and so forth. So, What was your other kernel work before that? Uh, I'm actually the, uh, the author of the SIPHash implementation in Linux, which is fun. Huh. There you go. I don't know. There's some like ARM arithmetic routines I wrote. Just a bunch of kind of random things around the tree. I've been on uh, security at kernel.org for a really long time doing security stuff there. And, I, you know, I've kind of been doing both sides of the Linux kernel security game for, for ages. So I, I don't know. It's a, it's a community I, I'm familiar with and know people in. And, and like the general path was you're kind of open source out of tree back to 3.10 or whatever, you know, kernel package. And then after that distros and then after that kind of talking to, you know, about having it in mainline. What was like the first distro? Did you get put with there like any distros that were difficult to get this done with? Is there anything interesting there? 
Uh, no, nothing too interesting. First distro was Gentoo because I'm a Gentoo developer, so I just did it myself. Um, <laughs> Ubuntu is always a, a horrible distribution to work with. Just like why I used to before I switched to Mac OS, I was on Ubuntu for a long time. Well, they sort of inherit from Debian, but uh-huh. they're like not super tuned in to what's going on and like not really on top of things. And so it's just okay. always it's still a pain to like make sure Ubuntu is is working well. But I, I don't know. There's not too much interesting to say about the district story. It's just, you know, open source politics as usual. What about on Windows? Is that a kernel module or is it actually in the Windows kernel proper? So that, that's a, it's a kernel driver. So a, a, everything in Windows is a kernel driver. Even their networking stack is multiple kernel drivers. There's NDIS for the devices and there's TCP IP for the upper layers and there's NetIO that kind of glues it all together and NDI proxy to talk to user space and so forth. But, you know, Windows was a really crazy implementation. It started out as a port of uh, the Linux code and then kind of took on a life of its own. And uh, it has super fast crypto in it and really deep integration with Windows. The funny thing about developing for Windows is um, it's really like an archaeology of computing. There's just trash upon trash upon trash. Everyone in different generations has added their own way of doing things to Windows and nothing Uh has ever gotten removed for compatibility reasons. And so it's just like, it's just like sifting through the dumpster and trying to understand these historic relics, which is on one hand really awful, but on the other hand, really kind of addictive and and interesting. And so I've spent ridiculous amount of hours in Ida Pro now, just taking apart their networking stack and you know, finding weird bugs, but also just figuring out how to make this thing work well and be fast. And that WireGuard for Windows implementation does a lot of strange, undocumented stuff to make it work well. But I'm I'm quite happy with it. What are the strange undocumented Windows things? Yeah. Say oh more. Um, let's see. Uh, it works around bugs in an old layer called TDI uh, by just disabling it, moving around it. I don't know, it integrates with the service manager in a weird way where you have services begetting services. It's using a DNS setting API that's undocumented. That you literally found in IDA Pro? Yeah, I, I mean, I I can't program for Windows without IDA Pro. <laughs> like, you know, every major function of that thing, I'm taking apart in IDA Pro. I, I mean, I really, I can't program without the disassembler these days, even for Linux where I have the source where... Most changes to WireGuard, I compile and we'll then look at what's happened or like after a set of changes. Uh, and that, that's just kind of part of my like compile run, then disassemble is like the last step. Uh, but with Windows, that kind of uh, obsessive way of coding really gets out of hand because I don't even have source to look at to start with. So if I'm calling some function, I, I want to understand what it's doing. Um, you know, uh, what the side effects are is happening in memory. And I can't just look at the code like I can with Linux. And so it's extremely time consuming. I mean, everything's got to go through Ida. And, yeah. I feel like we need more. What I, I hesitate to call you a cryptographer, but you are a protocol designer. And I mean, you implemented Sipash, so you're, you're practically a cryptographer. We need more people designing and implementing protocols that are literally decompiling things to make sure that the state machine that they have designed is doing what they intended to do when they implement it. 
because I don't, I don't hear other people talking about how they made sure that the thing that they designed is doing what they think it's supposed to do, like you do right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not just state machines too, but you know, crypto as well. You know, if I if I write some uh, some curve code, or if I write, you know, cha cha implementation or something, even the reference implementation in C is gonna make some funky code and compilers are weird. I want to understand what it's doing, how it works. So yes. even that stuff has got to be taken apart. Yeah, I think this is more an indictment of like the fact that even C, you don't know what the hell the compiler is going to do. Like we just we yeah. don't have particularly good tooling for writing lowish level stuff that isn't just like writing assembly directly. And we don't have good tooling for doing that either. Like, oh, and I was going to, you know, say something like, oh, Rust lets you do things, blah, blah, blah. But even for Rust, people are, like, extremely excited to have a um, a keyword to inline assembly to get that to stabilization because they need it. And so, yeah, even, even the, like, the highly typed, like, compile time guarantees and memory safety guarantees of, like, your LLVM-backed Rust, people still want to inline their assembly to guarantee that it'll do what they think it's supposed to do. Also, I think in a lot of cases where you'd want to look at that, you'd end up being in an unsafe block anyway, but maybe I'm yeah. just a negative person. <laughs> <laughs> negative so Nelly. Like, the, the, the Linux implementation of WireGuard is written in kernel C. It's it's kernel resident memory unsafe C code. Tell me why I should trust it. Why shouldn't that like revolt me? <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of scary. I mean, I. <laughs> oh, come on. I, I, agree. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I just um, wrote it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I, it's worrisome, but uh, I, I suppose there are mitigating factors. It's very carefully written C, and there's not a lot of it. And so mm -hmm. it's something that you can look at and assess and look for bugs uh, in a sitting or two. It's not like. It's the task of reading the entire kernel, mm. reading a massive implementation. It's a small implementation. And so, you know, the, the many eyeballs theory is mostly BS because, you know, if the code is big enough, many eyeballs don't want to do anything, you know, that's mm -hmm. too much work. But uh, WireGuard hopefully is interesting enough and small enough that it can be done as a, as a casual project. Mm -hmm. um, but also just the the attention that's gone into the code um, uh, is is considerable and, and maybe different than a lot of other C projects where things are added and features are added at an alarming pace. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's also been designed to be implementable in a way that's um, that's secure or uh, or leads itself to be secure. There's uh, kind of a fixed amount of state so that you don't have to have uh, dynamic memory allocation. Yeah. Um, all the messages are fixed size, so uh, oh. you don't have any parsers, you know, no parsers, you got no parser bugs. And so kind of a, a bunch of different coding techniques like this lead to a, a C implementation that isn't doing anything too scary. They're, they're parsers, but they are they're not dynamic. They're not reading like a, like the following message is, you know, n bytes. And then you try to trust it that it's actually n bytes and you're not, uh, you know, going to read a bunch of thing and try to parse it as a type that uh, it lied to you about. It's like everything is a fixed size and it either, it either fits or it doesn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, you throw it away. 
Yeah, that's right. So, okay. uh, so a message. So the, the the parsing action that happens is looking if a message is exactly the size or yeah. if it isn't. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it's just dumped into a struct, and that's so, it. This leads me to asking about, so what if all of these asymmetric primitives that we built into this thing are broken by, say, a large fault-tolerant uh, quantum computer sometime in the next 10 to 20 years? How can we make the things bigger so that we can fit some of our favorite post-quantum primitives into these <laughs> messages? Rodents of unusual size? I, I don't believe they exist. <laughs> Yeah, so PQ WireGuard is a topic that comes up a bunch. I mean, first I should mention WireGuard as it exists has a kind of a post-quantum safety hatch in it where you can mix in an additional static pre-shared key. Nice. So you, Love in theory, it. could negotiate normal WireGuard tunnel and then through that tunnel use something reliable like TCP to run, you know, McLeese where... You've got a lot of stuff to transfer, but doesn't really matter because you've got TCP. And it's authenticated already, pre-quantum, pre but authenticated already for now. And then mm -hmm. once you get the result out of McLeese, you pop that in the pre-share key slot, and now you have uh, post-quantum forward secrecy. Mm. So that exists now. That's kind of the current solution. The reason it's done that way is because I think at this point, no one really knows, aside from maybe McLeese and other code-based things, which post-quantum primitives are going to be the ones that make it. You know, NIST competition isn't really over. It's almost uh, over. You know, if, <laughs> if, if, you, if you looked into this, you know, maybe a year or two ago, you think, well, the Slata stuff has been around for a while. But, uh, you know, now, it, it, you know, people are starting to look at lattices and are, are these really the best proposals for them? How are we coming up with the parameters? You know, and maybe it'll all be fine. Maybe it won't. I don't know, but it's clearly very early with post-quantum yes. primitives for putting that kind of thing in the kernel. So it doesn't. Oh do yeah, that. yeah, in the kernel. Uh, uh, yeah, no. Wait, is, is, but but at is some point you're right. That, it's got another like year to go. It, like we're on round what's... three, and there's like three. There's three round three finalists for uh, key um, establishment or chem, uh, and there's three finalists for signatures. Signatures has gotten less attention because we, you know, we care more about the long term key establishment. There's also like runners up, and my favorites are in the runners up. So the psych uh, isology stuff is in the runners up. But yeah, they're almost done. So the three finalists right now are they all lattice? No, one yeah. of them will be McLeese, right? No, I don't think McLeese is a is a finalist. Let me check. Oh, sorry. Uh, there's four. Yeah, classic McLeese, Crystal's Kyber, which is lattices, Entry, which is lattices, and Saber, which I think is also lattices. And then um, for signatures, Crystal's, which is also which is lattices, Falcon and lattices, and Rainbow is not lattices. It's like codes or polynomials or something. Jason, you like you, you do cryptography work. Do you have opinions on like, you know, lattice cryptography or, you know, elliptic curve isogenies and stuff like that. Like, what's your what's your take on that? Are you enthusiastic about this? I am enthusiastic, but uh, I, my feeling now is like, if you got to design a system, figure out how to use McLeese in it, despite it being expensive. I mean, if you got to design a PQ system, it seems like 
McLeese is the conservative choice, and the others are really up in the air. But getting back to your original question, so post-quantum wireguard, what's the deal? Um, so yeah, if in you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years, depending on you know, who you're talking to, who needs the budget or whatever, there's quantum computers, um, everything breaks, and now we also need post-quantum authentication that's online, etc. Now we got to redesign things. And it seems to me that if things continue as they are with the types of designs that have come out, um, the wire guard design in general is going to need some big adjustments. Now, it is, I think, technically possible to kind of shoehorn a bunch of PQ stuff now into WireGuard's design. Like, it does static-static Diffie-Hellman, but there's Seaside, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, can kind of do that. Uh, uh, and you don't want to do static-static with Seaside, but you can use Psych, which is just a tiny bit larger. Okay, sure. Um, and, you know, maybe that's fine, but then you also probably want to add some elliptic curve stuff on top of it, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have pre-quantum security um, and, hybrid. you know, messages start to blow up, but importantly, computational complexity starts to blow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you're sending little UDP packets, uh, or big UDP packets that have no other, no other authenticating information into mm-hmm. the kernel that does a lot of computation on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and seems like that leads to DOS and all sorts of other ugly things. Um, yeah. Or maybe you you get rid of the the static static, uh, but now you've got another round trip, so now the state machine blows up. If you were like, if you were talking to somebody who uh, does not know what the hell you're talking about when you say seaside and static static, uh, <laughs> do you want to demystify? Okay, um, so SIDH is super singular isogeny Diffie Hellman. Um, instead of using elliptic curves to do a Diffie Hellman key agreement. You do a walk and a graph of isogeny maps between elliptic curve uh, classes. So just say elliptic curves. Um, And you'll start at one curve and you do a a walk in the graph to another curve. The secret walk is the isogeny. That's your secret key. And the public curve that you walk to is your public key. And you're able to do something with this walking on this curve graph that's Diffie-Hellman-ish. It's not really Diffie-Hellman because there are no... Uh, groups. This is not abelian. There's a commutative aspect because of the way the isogeny maps commute. I'm using your quotes. They commute. When this was originally proposed, you could theoretically do a static-static SIDH key establishment. There is a static adaptive attack against a long-term static SIDH key so that you could make multiple queries against a static key and you would get enough bits uh, from that to break it in, you know, if you have a 700-bit field, you would do like 700 uh, key establishments against it, and then you would have broken their static key. Psych, which is super singular isogeny key establishment, is the submission that was proposed to NIST. And it basically takes Psych and it wraps it up in like the the transform that lets you do, it's sort of like turning in it into an encryption key establishment, and it, it pr- turns it from CPA secure to CCA secure and protects against this uh, active adaptive attack. So you can use it for a static key and ephemeral, but you can use it for a long-term static key, which you need in current WireGuard um, and anything else such as signal protocol. 
Uh, it's just a little bit bigger. I think it went from 300 bytes to 300 some more bytes uh, for a pumpkin. And this is, and this is all kind of important for WireGuard because, like, a, a big difference between WireGuard and other kind of public key, um, you know, secure transports is that WireGuard is based on it's based on noise, which is in turn like based on essentially triple Diffie-Hellman. Right. So, um, you know, the common architecture of Internet, you know, cryptography protocols prior to noise was you'd have you do Diffie-Hellman if you wanted forward secrecy, if you wanted every connection to essentially have right. its own keys. But you'd be doing ephemeral key Diffie-Hellman. You'd be making up keys. You know, in theory, you're making up keys on both sides of that connection for every new connection. The keys just, you know, they get thrown away when they're done. They don't have any meaning. In triple Diffie Hellman, what you're doing is, and then for for those protocols, for those old, you know, the old school, you know, secure transport protocols, to kind of break the man in the middle tie, there you would sign, right? You would do yeah. a, a signed right. Diffie Hellman, right? Yeah. Triple Diffie Hellman actually just uses nothing but Diffie Hellman, and there's a mm -hmm. you have like you have ephemeral keys, and then you have long term kind of static identity keys, and so mm -hmm. you need to be able to do a that you know a static Diffie Hellman on both sides to do to kind of mix in the identity key to that connection. That's so WireGuard WireGuard actually does four Diffie Hellmans in this case: does static, 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 ephemeral, ephemeral, static, ephemeral, yeah. ephemeral. But uh, yeah, the original 3DH gets a bunch of properties without static, static in there. Sure. And then the idea being, once you've done all, you do all of these Diffie Hellman's, either the three for Signal or the four for uh, for WireGuard, and you literally like feed them all into your your key derivation function, and then you can ratchet. If you're in Signal, you just keep ratcheting your keys forward every time that you send messages back and forth to each other, or not. I don't think WireGuard does that, right? Uh, WireGuard will redo the entire handshake every two minutes. Awesome. More or less. So it just it just throws it out and starts over. Uh. Um, <laughs> and, and then there's a, an, another kind of limited state state machine where it will um, it'll kind of juggle between three different uh, states: uh, current session, next session, previous session, and it'll <laughs> rotate those according to some rules, so you don't have to allocate and such. Uh, but I anyway, this. I was going somewhere with the postcard yeah, thing, which is um, so. Yeah, one design is you just it's our job like, to keep you from getting there. <laughs> it, you can just kind of go uh, PQ primitive shopping and you know find the ones that fit in a fifteen hundred byte or twelve eighty byte UDP packet. <laughs> see what you can pack in there, and you know you come up with something for the for the first message. Either you give up on the static static thing and introduce a you know. A, a half round trip, a trip, I guess, or you you throw it in there and and you know hope it's secure. But uh, and, and you know there have been papers to this effect. Um, mm -hmm. It's a legitimate academic exercise to go through and find out what primitives and parameters and whatnot will make this work. And mm -hmm. you look through the WireGuard paper and you see the security properties it's got, and then you try and match them all up with the thing you're proposing. And you know it's a successful paper, fine, but uh, I think it it. It's ultimately too expensive and too prone to DOS. And the mm. whole thing with WireGuard is it gets away now being so light because there, there's just not that much crypto. Mm -hmm. Curve 25519 is small and cheap and well understood. And so we can be kind of very loose with this one round trip handshake. So I, I think new designs that incorporate post-quantum crypto are in some ways going to have to give up on one round trip 
mm. um, which is unfortunate, but also um, there, there are some security drawbacks of one round trip. Uh, with one round trip, you get identity hiding, but you don't get for secrecy for identity hiding, for example. Mm. And so the noise patterns that do more than one round trip wind up needing to store state on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, to figure which, out where Which you doesn't are. really fit well with WireGuard, yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, what I think uh, would be possible for future protocols, maybe, you know, future revisions of WireGuard, et cetera, is uh, to go back to the old cookie idea where the sides aren't storing state. They pass the state back and forth either oh, no. uh, with like a hash seed or encrypted with some, uh, you know, locally cached key to keep around for a certain amount of time. Mm. And so you don't need a state machine on both sides with a bunch of memory. Mm. Um, you can uh, you can just kind of re-derive things. And then it's a question of how do you organize the protocol so that re-driving things um, from, you know, a, a little bit of information by the time you're at, you know, message four or three or something is, is cheap. And, you know, it's a little complicated, but I think it's also been done before and isn't impossible. Uh, and this is and I one think of the that kind of design. TLS, that? right? Like one dot, is it 1.3 where you can encrypt this? This is zero RTT. You're encrypting a bunch of this stuff. I forget. Maybe David knows. It's not yeah, a cookie, so the, but it's state. Yeah. So, so the zero RTT, um, uh, you know, ha has similar issues with for secrecy on the authenticator but yeah you you have a little stored piece of information that you you send and uh the other side can hang on to something to to decrypt that and then resume a session mm. what would you say to the isogeny stuff has very small keys so it would fit in the zero in the one round trip but the yeah so so the computational so, so, complexity of doing the key establishment with that is larger and putting that in the kernel might be a little bit more than people want to do. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you could do it, right? And I, people have made these proposals and it's probably not too hard to implement if, you know, you can come up with a decent implementation of the actual primitive, which is mm -hmm. hard in itself with these things. Um, mm -hmm. But still, you got this DOS issue. And I, I mean, WireGuard already has this DOS issue with 25519. But it works around it with um, these two cookies it adds to the messages, these two Macs it adds on. Um, I see. Where uh, uh, basically you have to prove that you know who you're sending a packet to. Mm -hmm. And uh, if the other side is under a load, uh, it'll then ask for another round trip basically in a stateless way um, so that you prove that you control an IP address and then you can token bucket rate limit that IP address. We can do that. No, and yeah, and so, yeah, and so you know that that could also work for for doing some isogeny stuff that's a little more expensive, mm -hmm. but also in practice it's hard um, mm -hmm. because even if you're rate limiting, you're still processing a lot of those messages, and that still uses some amount of CPU. And with yeah, for five nineteen, it's you know a lot, but it's not too much, hopefully, depending yeah, on the hardware. But stuff's a lot more than with, that. Yeah, so it, it gets hard. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, and, it, and it seems like if, you know, we're to go back to the drawing board anyway, maybe we want some additional properties that you don't get with one round trip. Mm. So the next challenge is how can we add more round trips? Well, keeping the state machine just as small. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's the other aspect of the timers around that state machine and 
retransmits and so forth. You don't want to wind up with something crazy like DTLS. But it seems possible, but there's work to be done there. And anyway, I think that's probably what the future will we'll have in store for the post-quantum stuff. Yeah. What do you think the future has in store for uh, for an RFC or a standard for WireGuard? And what's your take? What do you want the future to be there? Yeah, I've started running an RFC a couple times. I've got some drafts of it around. I think I think I could probably send it up and get the informational one published. And some people would say, well, now, you know, WireGuard is RFC, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, and now it's super legitimate or something, even though it's just informational. It's, you know, it gets that number and then people think it's important. But I, also, I, I'm not sure how uh, how productive it would actually be in the end, what that would actually give. Another aspect to a WireGuard uh, as, a, as a project that uh, gets overlooked is it's not just about the protocol. It's also about how the implementations work. And that's not to say that like, oh, you're specifying implementation behavior. That's like the wrong thing to do. I actually mean it in an even more detailed way that it's not just implementation behavior, but implementation technique, I think, is important. Um, yeah. Where it, it's not enough just to have, you know, a, a certain domain range of an algorithm. I, I actually want the way it's implemented to be uh, really solid, mm-hmm. you know, down to how the, the memory allocation works and so forth. And so as a as a project, I've tried really hard to to have high quality implementations that live up to that. To that extent, I also worry that publishing an RFC might send the wrong message where, oh, it sends the right, you know, bits on the wire. It, it's done. It's that's good enough for WireGuard, but really it's that's not good enough. Yeah. Um, uh, which, you know, a lot of IETF folks will disagree with. A lot of, you know, uh, very legitimate internet people will, will disagree with, but I think when it comes to making a secure protocol, the implementation stuff is really just as important as how the protocol itself works. Mm. And like the design of the protocol being small enough lends itself easier to a better and and tighter implementation. But you're right that it's sort of like you hand over the specification and you you don't know what people will do with it like it might yeah. be compatible but it might not be anywhere near what you and your collaborators have produced in your own code in the like official WireGuard repositories but it's it's very good because like I remember before when I when it came out I was on like Mac OS so I used the Golang wrapper or whatever and now there's the Golang one there's Rust there's the Android kernel stuff there's the freebsd stuff there's like it the windows stuff now like you basically have something officially wireguard compat approved for almost every platform and they're all very good and that's amazing because not very every project has like the resources and the capability and the the energy to actually be like yep i've looked at all of these and they are up to snuff rather than be like here's the spec someone go please implement it like i I'll, i just need an implementation that is compatible like i'm i'm desperate <laughs> yeah yeah i mean I, i'd say that's that's a good summary i mean the, there are a lot of protocol documents out there so i mean you yeah. can read it and learn about the protocol it's not like uh, you know you use this phrase like hand over the protocol but like you know it's out there there's, there's no no secrets or obfuscation or anything like that it's yeah. there but I, I'm, I'm just, I don't want to 
kind of encourage like the way that part of the internet thinks about things, hmm. you know, by, by going the RFC route. I, I, I still might do it, but I, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not super, uh, I don't know. I'm not super enthusiastic about it right now anyway. Sure. Ooh. Um, support or integration of hardware or enclave backed keys. That would be neat. Like you would have your long-term WireGuard key pair backed by like secure enclave on your, you know, your Android or your iPhone or your, you know, secure element on your MacBook or something like that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, you know, on iOS and on macOS, the storage for the private keys are in the keychain, which then use some hardware back stuff. But yeah. of course, the computations are happening on the CPU. So uh, you can leak it that way. Mm. Um, so putting it down in some hardware would be nice. It's always a little tricky to do with uh, Diffie-Hellman stuff. It's not like a signature where, you know, you don't have to worry about uh, how many things it signs and what it signs for leaking keys. Mm-hmm. With with Diffie-Hellman stuff, that's, you know, possibly a little more complicated where uh, if you're just doing Diffie-Hellman on another device and you, you know, give it stuff to multiply... Can you trick it, extract the key, all that? Uh, so mm. these are a little more complicated there. So I think uh, to that extent, people have looked at doing uh, the whole WireGuard handshake on dedicated chips. Mm. Uh, I know a few different projects, um, all currently private and commercial, that are trying to make ASICs and custom hardware to do that kind of thing. And I hope those succeed. It'd be cool to see. Yeah. Do people use WireGuard or do you have an opinion on using WireGuard as just a transport and not a full, like a layer, I guess this would be layer five transport rather than like a full layer three VPN? Would you find a way to use WireGuard instead of TLS? Like, do you think Ooh, that, yes. do you think there's enough of a win to, uh, you know, there there are things people don't like about TLS, although maybe less so with 1.3. Like if you had to pick between 1.3 and WireGuard. Well, the comparison there doesn't really fit because TLS running over TCP, which gives you a reliable stream, and WireGuard doesn't. So then it depends on use case. But maybe between like DTLS and WireGuard would be the better comparison. But uh, well, you could run like you could run Quick over it or something. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, so what I had hoped would happen was that the noise pipe stuff would take off to replace a yeah. lot of TLS use cases, where you could you know pick some noise handshake not necessarily ik the one that uh wireguard uses but xk you have an additional mm-hmm. packet and you get some other security guarantees out of that and that would be a neat tls replacement it's just a kind of straightforward thing you can run over tcp mm-hmm. but i wireguard itself indeed does work fine for doing i guess in this case uh like layer four stuff or layer five stuff it's talking uh online with uh someone building a, a wire guard pipe the other day. Um, mm. We're looking at ways where to kind of work around the, the crypto key routing stuff. So you really only have to set a couple bytes and then you don't need a full IP header. Um, so it is possible and I think works well. Um, but for most use cases where you want reliable stuff, something like noise pipe probably works better. You mentioned quick, which is interesting. Uh, what I would expect to happen in the next couple of years with Quick in general in this space is start to see Quick-based VPNs. Hmm. 
uh, you know, there are tons of TLS-based VPNs. Quick gives you way more possibilities with those um, because it's UDP, so you, you don't have uh, the had a lot of blocking stuff, and uh, you don't have to use DTLS. You know, Quick kind of has it all. Um, but also uh, running Quick inside a WireGuard that, that seems superfluous since you know Quick already has a bunch of crypto bolted onto it. So as far as mixing the worlds, I, I don't know about that. All right. What's next for WireGuard? Oh, boy, I don't know. Coming, uh, coming up. Let's see. Hopefully, we'll be getting the free BSD implementation actually merged into their kernel. It's still out of tree. Nice. Um, so, yeah. And there's a little bit of work on their crypto API going on there. I hope in the next year to, to finally put some attention onto the WireGuard Rust implementation. Cool. Um, we've... I've had one sit in the repos for a while, but needs to be reviewed, cleaned up a bit. And then I think, you know, we'll be able to send the announcement email, hey, this is ready, build things out of it. Mm. In the last months, I've been putting tons of energy into the the Windows stuff. And that I expect to continue for a few months still to kind of get that fully ironed out and done. You know, that software is trying to be like a real system component of Windows. So it seems like it came with the OS is what it's striving to do. So um, great. And, and that winds up being way more time consuming than any of the other platforms for the reasons we discussed. <laughs> so that'll be going on for a bit. As an Android user, I look forward to the kernel level WireGuard to be exposed from. I've been using the WireGuard on Android user space app for a long time. So uh, I oh, love yeah, that. Yeah. But if it's if it's kernel level exposed, that'll be even nicer. Yeah, so, so that's another thing uh, hopefully will be coming up is uh, working with the Google folks to write their user space for that, but also um, uh, for Chromebooks. Um, I think we're going to be adding WireGuard there too. And so there's some interesting uh, tooling and uh, plumbing that's going to hook that up and expose that in the UI. So ho- hopefully there will be some things about that coming out in the next, uh, next few months. Are you aware of Fuchsia OS? Yeah, I mean, I know about Fuchsia. Not a podcast but, uh, yeah. episode about... unless Deirdre mentions Fuchsia. <laughs> hey. Ah, okay. <laughs> hey, I've already um, mentioned the isogenies. We've got WireGuard and Rust. We should just throw it at the Fuchsia folks and just make it part of their... Well, they have a they have a, a microkernel that's not in Rust, but everything else is in Rust. But, yeah, uh, that would be a cool idea. I remember talking to them a long time ago about using something WireGuard alike for what were they talking about? Like their Bluetooth stack, or I don't know, some <laughs> kind of crazy IPC, something crazy. Uh, that didn't seem to fit, but they, it was on their radar. So I'm glad. Yeah, okay. I, I, th- I, th- I think uh, I think that could be something neat. I, I know I know a little birdie or two, and I could just be like, hey, hey, you should just <laughs> put this in your tree. Just, just add it. Just do yeah. it. It's it's ready to go. Yeah, practice the Rust well, implementations in a good spot. We'll print it off and then physically mail it to Fuchsia people. <laughs> it, you know, you know that's what I did with the WireGuard paper originally. You is printed I it out. Physically mailed it. Um, <laughs> so I, I I wrote that paper and I didn't really have anything to do with academia at all. Uh. I'm like I didn't you know where do I send it? Who's going to look at it? Who will break it? So I. I printed out a copy and I physically mailed it to DJB. Nice. He, he, right. he didn't respond to it, it, but I figured like if there's any chance like of, you know, it's like I built a protocol with this. using almost all of your crypto primitives. Like, tell me, tell me where it is broken, if anything. Yeah. <laughs> Did he ever hear back? 
No, and then, you know, years later, finally met him at a conference. He was like, oh, yeah, you sent me that in the mail. It's on my <laughs> desk somewhere. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Amongst all the papers. Like, I think, like, and not recently, but, like, maybe a couple of years ago, some of the flack that WireGuard got was from people that were really big into formal verification. Um, huh. And, like, there, there, was a, there was a notion that, like, you know, any new, like, major protocol, like, major secure transport we do should be designed with formal methods. Um, and, you know, should be directly provable in some, you know, model that we already have. How compelling do you find that argument? I know you've done some stuff with formal analysis for WireGuard. I mean, I think it's a compelling <laughs> argument. I, it, it was used in context to say, like, NDSS never should have accepted the WireGuard paper because it didn't come with a formal security proof. And, whatever. <laughs> you know, that seems unreasonable because... Uh -huh. um, because for, you know, the most concrete reason, at NDSS, I met uh, this guy, Kevin Milner, who was working with Cass Kramers at Oxford. Mm -hmm. He was like, hey, that looks cool. Have you ever heard of formal verification? Have you ever used Tamarin? Yeah. Um, I said, I have never used Tamarin. And then we sat down at the conference and he showed me to use Tamarin. And then a few months later, I was hanging out with him up at Oxford and, you know, banging out the first proofs of WireGuard. There you go. Had it not gone to NDSS in the first place, that never would have happened. Yeah. Um, and uh, since then, formal verification now has just become part of my general flow of doing these nice. protocols. It, it, it's, I think it's an important tool without a doubt. And, I, and I, I guess that variety of stuff, automated solvers, also has been useful for me for just hacking things. I wind up using SAT solvers for... Nice you know, doing little implementation proofs for crypto things. Like if I'm writing some, you know, funky C code to like change the base of some limbs, oftentimes I'll want to prove that and I'll break out the SAT solver. But it's, you know, equally as useful for hacking stuff. I want to see how some weird code works or find unusual <laughs> paths through it. I can load the assembly up in something like Anger and run uh, run you know, Boolector from the SMT output of that. Uh and, and so I think in general, these uh, techniques, you know, symbolically, symbolic model for crypto, um, computation model for crypto, SAT solving, et cetera, have just become part of a tool set uh, yeah. that's super useful across the board. Love it. I, I want to learn more about that, but I work on a cryptocurrency, so I have enough things to work on. <laughs> well, hey, if, if anything needs proofs, you know. <laughs> yeah, the... Yeah, we have a network protocol, and we've got a bunch of protocols all smushed together. You have to, like, figure out which one you would like to formally verify. <laughs> but, like, what, where's the low hanging fruit? I think Bitcoin fixes this? What? <laughs> when I was doing the state machine for WireGuard, I indeed didn't know about Tamron. You know, that didn't happen until I met Kevin. Uh, but I sat down on my floor and taped a bunch of pieces of printer paper together and then just started drawing it and drawing drawing was, wire guard the protocol like, and draw, like, the like drawing the drawing the state machine yeah working it got out. it and the goal was to you know convince myself that the state machine was sound and yeah. you, i uh, you know it's you not, still have that paper rigorous but nah unfortunately not it'd be fun to have but you, you, know, you, you uh, could have auctioned it off Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
I mean, that's not far off from like, if you were trying to encode the state machine as literal state transitions in types. So for a bunch of stuff in Rust, it's literally like, you cannot represent one of these states unless you consume the memory of, an, of one of them, of one state, and transform it into another. That is the only way in this implementation that you're able to do this. So literally writing it down on paper is like the first step to doing that. And then the next step is to write it as transitions between types and then compiling it and making sure that, that the, the flow actually works as you think it does. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, un underlying that process, of course, is a bunch of type calculus for why that yeah. theory is sound, you know, yeah. why it works out using types. Yeah. All okay. right. Aside from uh, paying for and winning an auction of your state machine pieces of paper, um, how else <laughs> could people support the development of WireGuard? So the project lives on donations. I'm living off of donations. If you go to wireguard.com slash donations, there's a there's a, a form you can send money. GitHub sponsors has a, a link there. There's a Patreon. If you uh, if you run a company, you want to give a lot of money, we can throw the logo on wireguard.com slash donations. But that's that's how the project ticks. I mean it's tried really hard to kind of make it an independent project that's not financed by some product that would bias it um, mm. uh, and, you know, isn't in the pocket of some huge company, uh, just kind of this independent thing with a mailing list and so forth. But that also means that the funding is, you know, random, just comes from anyone pitching in and from a lot of great companies that, you know, aren't trying to you know, be the project, but appreciate the project and want to see mm. it live on doing its thing. And uh, so that's been real helpful. I just went to check if I was already sponsoring uh, WireGuard on GitHub, and I am. So full disclosure, I'm sponsoring one of WireGuard's many GitHub sponsors. Oh, oh thanks. This is nice of you. <laughs> awesome. Jason, thank you very much for joining us. This has been wonderful. I'm, I'm learning so much from you, and I'm you're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. I would have taught more and annoyed Jason more, but there's a rock saw going in my backyard right behind us. <laughs> this is cool. I need to go learn Tamarin. <laughs> me too. Should, just take a second real quick. S sell us Tamarin. Like, you, you make it sound very cool and very easy to pick up, and I've never even considered it. So yeah, okay, sell yeah, me a Tamarin. It sounds like a, a mountain to climb. Tamarin's cool. So Tamarin is like Proverif, uh -huh. uh, but better, way okay. better. Uh, so if you use Proverif, it's like the same thing. If you haven't, the deal is this. Um, they've got a domain-specific language where you write uh, each message and who it's transmitted to and how it's computed. And if you use a hash function, you have just a generic thing called a hash function. You're not specifying that it's you know, Blake or Shaw or something. Uh -huh. so, you, so you can kind of write down the flow of the protocol generically, which means it's a symbolic proof and not a computational one because you're not looking at, uh, you know, what are the exact limits on the number of messages and that, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, once you've written down a description, uh, then you can, you can write down what you want it to prove that if you, you know, send these messages and then these messages, this next message... 
uh, won't be readable except by, you know, this other principle. Mm-hmm. And uh, it has a little bit of, of temporal logic built in as well. So you can order things based on a time one and a time two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's it's a kind of very expressive language. You can write down the whole flow of the protocol and then all these different things that you want to prove. And then you tell it to prove it. And um, it will use tons of RAM and CPU <laughs> and it probably won't succeed. It might, which is cool when it happens, but it probably won't. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point in, say, Proverif, you can um, you, know, you can choose different things. You can give it some more CPU and memory and have it run longer and hope that it will work then. Or you can write some helper lemmas where you say, uh, well, you know, actually, you, you know, you look at this hash chain this way, it reduces to this. So just assume that it's clear and then maybe that'll help out the prover. Or with Tamarin, the really cool thing that makes it great is it has a web interface where you can then click through the different like paths that a proof can take. Yes. And it'll show with like graph viz output, like, okay, here are the assumptions we can make and then move on to the next step. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of click through these and see visually where it's going in the proof. And so, and so you can catch like... It should not be able to go in this direction, but the way that I have written it down says that it can go in this direction. You're like, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, so you can say, go in this one instead and like visit that area. So you can say, all right, go here and now try and try and prove it again automatically. Yeah. And so usually you, you run it, gets to where it is, you click a few times, and then it'll finish it off. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can encode what you've just clicked into helper lemmas and such uh, or... Uh, Kevin wound up fixing a lot of the internal logic of of Tamarin. It's a big Haskell program (laughs) so that it would better choose things for WireGuard's proof, which is nice. This interactive aspect is very cool. The interactive aspect makes the whole thing fast enough that I can use it as a real tool in development because it's not like I write up the protocol and then I got to wait like three days for it to finish or something. I can write it off, like click through it a little bit. And see if the thing I just wrote up is stupid or if it works. Um, and you think, you know, uh, you know, when you're doing crypto, yeah, like you just shouldn't be stupid, period. But actually, when you've got a prover, you can just write down whatever occurs to you and see if it's solid. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of a, a guess and check, which is a very nice way to develop things. So once you write this down in this DSL and the thing that you wrote down in your DSL is like good to go, you have to go implement that in the real thing that you want to deploy. And how do you like check for divergence just by eye or what? Yes. Yeah, so with with something like Tamarin or uh, or Provera, yeah, it's really two different implementations because you're writing yeah. in this domain specific language. And so okay. if you're mapping one to another, yeah, it's just I that it's it's the same. You just hope that it's the same implementation. Okay. Um, which, you know, it's better than nothing, but yes. you would like it to be the same. There, there are other projects um, like uh, Hacklestar out mm-hmm. of Inria, for example, mm-hmm. where they're able to write implementations of protocols in a language called Fstar mm-hmm. and then prove things about that implementation, but then also lower it down to C. Yeah. And they're doing this for TLS or something or pieces of TLS. Yeah, for, for pieces. And, they, and they've even done this uh, in other parts of the general project with uh, primitives. 
Nice. Uh, so not just with protocols, but like with, you know, is this actually cha-cha mm -hmm. uh, or is this actually curved to 5.19? And what's cool with that is, like I was saying, with protocols where I can, you know, mess with it a little bit and, you know, do silly things to see if it proves, they can make optimizations to their curve code uh, that are speculative, not super well thought out, but mm -hmm. will probably make it faster and then see if it's actually correct after. Like yeah, Instead a, of having... In the protocol in Tamarin's view of correctness. Well, so I, I'm talking about for, for Hackle Star. So like if, if they're okay, working okay. on a curve implementation, like of Curve 519, let's say, and they see, oh, actually, if we just omit these steps or rearrange these steps or do this a little differently, the code is going to generate this faster. Then they can just check immediately, is it also correct? Mm -hmm. Which is really powerful because most of the time when you're writing super optimized code for primitives, you spend a lot of time like carefully scrutinizing your math to see mm -hmm. is this op optimization legit? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think the math checks out. Hopefully it's okay. Yeah. Or like I'm windowing just this much for this field to try and get a speed up and it should be correct and all my test vectors are passing, but like, you know, maybe it did something weird at an edge case or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when it's just you in front of your computer, how much <laughs> are you hand waving for yourself and how much are you actually being rigorous? It's, it's a hard thing to do. So I, I think these tools are really important where you just can develop fast and then it checks you. Yeah. Cool. So I, I guess to bring back that, that back to WireGuard, it would be cool to have something like a Hackle Star uh, WireGuard implementation. We looked at various times at doing that and... I think the code it generates still isn't super suitable for the kernel, mm -hmm. uh, but you know maybe maybe it'll get there in time. But the other aspect is that WireGuard's trying to be simple enough that you can't just you know look at both things and see that they line up. Yeah. That hopefully the the manual version is sufficient. Yeah. Hopefully. As opposed to TLS, which or IPsec, where it's just like it's so complicated that you kind of can't eyeball it anymore and so you're just like yes if we have a computer checked proof of the thing that we're spitting out we are we're more confident in that whereas if the thing is small enough to be wire guard you can just like look at it and just be like yeah we it's small enough that a human or two can just hold it in their head and grok it as opposed to right. like the complexity of ipsec or tls even even 1.3 awesome. okay thank you jason, jason thank you for doing this yeah, yes thank you. Sure. This is great. I learned stuff. Um, and we may keep bugging you. About, although, like, literally you enumerated all of the paths forward, so there's nothing to say for <laughs> so well, years. I don't know. If, it, if you think of something cool that, or, like, if you want to actually pursue a certain path, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to... I may fork I, the, I mean, the, the Rust wire the, guard the, and just be like, here, this is how you slot in a nice Rust implementation of Psych and... This is what it does, and you can just say, yeah, you know, not, this not a bad is idea. too much or too little or too complex or too DOSy or, or, or whatever. Or go back it. to your cupboard under the stairs, Deirdre. <laughs> <laughs> what a nice implementation! You get a cookie, okay? Now go. Yeah, home. it's like it's very <laughs> nice. You can go use it, you, you yourself, and only you. <laughs> well, it's just the, the opinions I have on like should we do PQ now or later, and how should it be done. 
I mean, they're opinions, but they're not like super strong. Oh, and yeah. You might find that in the practice of implementing it, you come up with something yeah. pretty cool and good and worth doing. Anyway. So it seems like good research to do either way. Oh, yeah. It, it's definitely research because it's basically there are no obvious options. There's trade-offs in every access. So it's all it's all sort of like, okay, let's let's try some stuff and find out where we get burnt because we're going to get burnt somewhere. We either have to change the protocol we're trying to retrofit. We either have to compromise on some of the security levels of some of these primitives. We have to, you know, we either have to accept that these things are going to be slow. It, you know, like there's it, there's trade-offs everywhere. So we got to figure it out. I don't know. Because or, we have to I figure mean, something out before we ask people to try to adopt it. If you're just trying to slide stuff in, you could probably do Psyche and Kyber, you know, It'll just, just do a, a hi hybrid of them. Yeah. 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 That's, that's basically the direction I would go. And we'll figure out signatures later. We we could do we can do max. We don't have to worry about signatures. Signatures are like TLS and, and other stuff. Anyway, I'll stop talking. <laughs> we can yeah. get Chris Pikert on later this month under the guise <gasps> of it being a discussion about post quantum crypto, but actually he and I will spend the entire time talking about the upcoming Michigan versus Ohio State football game. I was gonna <laughs> say that it should be under the guise of Michigan football, and then I will grill him. <laughs> We're <We're laughs> around. There we go. <laughs> Post quantum primitives. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, Jason. Jason. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, yes. Thank you. Sure. This is great. I learned stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, cool. 